today we're going to talk about healing. How does the church live out God's story of healing in the world? And we're going to do it by looking at one of my favorite stories in the New Testament of a Jesus healing a leper. But before we can get into that, we need to spend some time talking about this thing called context, which is the or one of the most important things to understand when it comes to narrative and storytelling. The definition of context is the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be understood or assessed. That seems very heady, but it's quite simple. What is the larger story taking place that we need to understand to make sense of a single part of it? What part of the story that has come before or may come after makes sense out of a single moment or a single line of dialogue. And we understand this probably better than we think we do, because you'll recognize lines and moments that are out of context and lose the meaning that they're supposed to have. One of the ways that this will happen is you'll totally misunderstand it. The literal meaning of a line may mean one thing, but in the context of the story means something completely else. And I've got a few examples. The first comes from the Godfather. Now look, Tyra, I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. Too late, they start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. I wanna make him an offer he can't refuse. If we pluck that out of the film, that's a really generous thing to do. That's probably a lot of money, or a big hug. Only problem is in the context of the film, he is threatening this person's life. And that's not great. Complete opposite meaning in the context of the story. And this is one that Laurie was afraid of me showing, but I'm going to show it anyway. It's, called, it's from a movie called Silence of the Lambs. Let's run that. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. I can tell some people got it because they groaned. Who, first of all, I'm having an old friend for dinner. What a nice thing to do for your old friend. Who knows why, in the context of this film, this is not the same thing. He's a cannibal. He's going to eat the guy. That's not very generous. So these are like the funny ones, the ones where you just completely miss the point if you take it out of context. But what's more common is actually that the literal meaning of it will stay true, but what you miss is the deeper meaning of it. So the line or the moment is still the same. You get the same information, but you miss something that makes it transcendent. And the first example of this, I'm about to spoil some old films, but you had like 40 years to see them, and that's not my fault. Do not email me. <laughs> but the first one is from Star Wars. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. One of the most famous lines in movie history. And literally, we still understand it out of context. That dude is that dude's father. But what makes it powerful is the story that built up to it. What makes it powerful is the drama, the revelation, the shock that you only understand when you understand the characters in the story so far. The other one that I brought is a little lighter. It's from E.T. We can run that. Right 
So out of context, it's a weird, pruny alien touching a kid's forehead. That is weird. But more than that, you still get it. He's saying, I'll be in your memories. You know, I'll be with you in how we remember the times we had. But in the context of the film, they have developed a deep, empathetic, beautiful relationship and friendship. And they're about to be torn apart probably forever. And in that context, that line means, I will always be with you. And that's beautiful, and I cry every time. <laughs> I think I just made Chuck cry right now. <laughs> and in these situations, we, get, we keep the literal meaning of it. All we lose is that next layer that makes them profound. And that is the danger of taking something out of context. We might miss what it's trying to show us in the most beautiful way. And I bring this up because I think we do this with Jesus' healing stories more than any other stories about him. Because Jesus' healing stories, especially our one today, can be simplified into Jesus just being a good dude. You're like, oh, he heals sick people. That's a nice thing to do. And while that's true, that's not all they're trying to communicate. There is something beneath the surface of almost all of them that when you understand it is profound. It's about context. And that's what we're going to talk about today with this story from the end of the first chapter of Mark's gospel. And the gospel is a good news story about Jesus. It's Mark's biographical account of who Jesus is. And I need to first show you where it falls within this chapter to begin this process of understanding it within context. So in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, he is trying to answer two questions. Who is the Messiah? which we talked about this a few weeks ago. It was the long-awaited and predicted king that God was going to send to restore his kingdom, to make right all things that had gone wrong on our earth. He was the one that they had waited for that was finally going to make things right again. And then the second question he goes to answer is, what does the Messiah do? And if you notice, these two questions have blocks of text that Mark basically separates to tell stories that answers them. Spoiler, Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. So the first one, the, all these things are Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. It's basically him saying, Mark saying, you want to know who the Messiah is? Sunday school, Jesus. And then the second block of text is Jesus living out what they predicted the Messiah would do. The Messiah would heal. Jesus heals. The Messiah goes about making things right. And everywhere that the divine presence found in the person of Jesus comes into something wrong with our world, it's set right. And what these together form in this chapter is what I would call a kingdom of God announcement. It's basically Mark, as a first century Jewish believer, saying that there is something dramatically new happening in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And that new thing is that restoration that we have been longing for for so long. God is finally, in Jesus, changing everything and restoring what was broken. And that's already pretty neat stuff. But what's really fascinating to me about this chapter is they starts with these high-level claims about Jesus, messianic claims, Jesus reliving the Exodus story, these profound, big theological notions. And yet, when you look at the structure, Mark climaxes this section of scripture with the last story, 
And it's this singular story that zooms in, it magnifies, it focuses on Jesus healing one man with leprosy. And Mark is making this claim that something going on in this story somehow is the climax of this kingdom of God announcement. There's something going on in this story that for Mark, I believe, changes everything about how he understood God and understood the story of God. And the question is why? Why is this so important in light of, quite frankly, bigger claims he makes before it? What about this story highlights the inbreaking kingdom of God that is setting all things right in Jesus Christ? And the answer, I believe, is found in the context. The context of the story lights it up. It changes the entire thing. And I think when understood, it turned Mark's entire notion of God and what God does in the world upside down. So we're going to dive in. We're going to start in Mark 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. So again, on a literal level, this is a very nice story. Yay, Jesus, you healed a guy with leprosy. But we need to peel back the first layer to get to the power of it. And it has to do with the man's request. Make me clean. Now, I think we often, as we read our Bibles, unconsciously change that to him saying, heal me. Heal me of my leprosy. That's not what he says. He says, make me clean. Which is an odd request in our 21st century American culture. Is he dirty? Is he covered in mud? Does Jesus have a hose, right? We don't really understand it because we need the context. You see, this phrase is crucial in the Old Testament. Being clean in the larger story of God had a lot of implications. And it was a central ritual for the Jewish religious system and Jesus' worldview in the first century. It was tied to the Jewish notion of God's holiness and how a human being should interact with God's holiness. You see, they looked at the Old Testament and they found a God who was the sole creator of all life, the author of all life in our universe. And they believed that this unique attribute, this power, this glory, set him apart from everything else, made him holy. And you didn't come into contact with the author of all life in the universe, lightly. So they believed that one of the ways that you showed reverence and respect to God's holiness was you separated it from what was unholy. And unholy, what I would just tell you, in their mind was anything in our broken world that was just antithesis to the nature and character of God, the opposite of it. So it would, be, it would be things that just from our world should not be brought into contact with what they saw as the creator and sustainer of all life. Things like death. It does not show reverence and respect to the creator of life if you bring death into his presence. Things like decay. God is the sustainer of life. Don't bring what is rotting into spaces with him. And they believed that this was something that you would do 
to show respect to his holiness. And one of the primary ways of showing this in the Old Testament was the concept of being ceremonially clean and unclean. And this is a very alien concept to us. So I'm going to give you some major points about it because I think we need to understand them to start getting at what is taking place in our story. So first, I need you to understand that being clean and unclean was not primarily a moral issue. It was primarily a status, a ceremonial status. What do I mean by that? It was a status in the sense that it was either something you should or shouldn't bring into the presence or holy space of God. You either were something that should do it or you weren't, either or proposition. It's also a status, and when I say not a, primarily a moral issue, because they viewed both of these as part of the cycle of life. You see, we would, in the normal lives as a human being, come into contact with a dead thing. So it's not morally my fault that that happened, but it still doesn't mean I should bring that into the presence of a holy God. Are y'all tracking with me? So, ceremonial status primarily focused on what we should be bringing into the presence of God. To build on that, the OT, Old Testament, had pretty clear explanations for how someone could become ceremonially unclean. And it was understood as being transferable or infectious. And it was also applied to both people and spaces. So you became unclean, your status changed from clean to unclean, when you came into contact with something else that was already unclean. Touch the dead body, you're now unclean. And the best example I can give you for this is my dog, Hank. Help you understand what I'm talking about, how they might have seen this in a very basic level. My dog, Hank, loves jumping in mud. It's his favorite hobby. I hate jumping in mud, and I don't want to have mud on me. But when Hank jumps in mud and then jumps on me, what happens to me? I become muddy. When Hank gets in mud and comes in my house, what happens? My house gets muddy. This is how we can kind of start to grasp how these statuses work. It seems rough, but it's important to know that these statuses weren't meant to be permanent. These were things that you could take part in rituals and purifications and various um, ceremonies of washing and cleansing by a priest where you could change back from being unclean to clean. Like I said, normal part of life. It happens. But before I could come in front of God, I should go through these rituals, which also meant that if you were unclean or if you had touched unclean things and you didn't go through the ceremonies and the rituals to become clean again, you were not supposed to come into the presence or holy dwelling space of God. Does it show reverence to God in their worldview to track mud into his house? No. More than that, if they're afraid of uncleanness infecting a space, are you going to risk infecting God's clean and holy space by going into it before you've done the ceremonies? That's a big no-no in the Old Testament. And for our story today, I need you to understand this because leprosy was viewed as one of the most unclean things that you could do or have, other than maybe touching a dead body. 
You see, leprosy in the Bible is more than just what we think of it in our world. It was all sorts of skin diseases in which your skin could get infected and start rotting or decaying while you were alive. So in the rabbinical text, they even sometimes call this like pretty much the walking dead, not the TV show. But it's this idea that while you were alive, you were somehow already dying. Do you think that's something they viewed as a thing you should bring before God? If you are rotting and God is the creator of life. No. This is one, like I said, of the most ceremonially unclean things a person could have. And because of this, Leviticus offered serious instruction about someone who had leprosy in terms of how they should behave both towards God and towards other people because they didn't want them to infect God's holy space or to infect other people with their uncleanness. It included things like they must live alone, isolated and separated from community. It also included wearing torn clothes so that they were totally distinct and people knew to stay away from them. Whenever they got close to somebody, they were told to cover their lip and yell, unclean, unclean, which imagine someone in modern-day Tallahassee doing that walking around. But it was a sign, stay away from me. Most, in my opinion, damaging of all, they weren't supposed to touch or be touched by anyone else. And if you know anything about science, a human being that is devoid of touch for a certain amount of time starts to fall apart. It is one of the deepest wounds that a human being can have, is that level of isolation. And every seven days, they could be inspected, and if they had been healed, they would go through the ceremonial washings, and they would be restored to their community, and they could go home. Unless you are one of the poor souls who had a form of leprosy that didn't heal. And then you did it over again, and over again, and over again. And you could not come home until you did. And within this context, I think we can approach this story with new eyes. Because within this context, this story is world-shattering for Mark. And I think it can be for us, too, in terms of how we understand God and how he operates in the world. Let's read it again, piece by piece, with new eyes and find new understanding. We start in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. First off, let's view his request with new eyes. His request is a lot clearer and a lot more heartbreaking. He is not saying, heal my itchy rash. He is saying, I want to go home. I want to end my isolation. Will you make me clean so I can go back to my community and worship again? Second, we can look at how this man approaches Jesus with new eyes. What are you supposed to do if you are unclean approaching someone clean? Torn clothes, unclean, unclean. Does he do any of that? No. This man is totally breaking the rules and regulations for approaching anyone who is clean when he is ceremonially unclean. But more than that, he is approaching a rabbi, a holy man. Even more than that, he is approaching the Messiah, the divine presence of a holy God. Do you think Leviticus would be cool with that? <laughs> I'm going to guess no. He's not only breaking the law, he is running the risk of infecting Jesus with his uncleanness and damaging God's holiness in their worldview. 
And this next part is where it got really powerful for me. It's where this story blew off the page, and it's why it has stuck with me for so long. This was pointed out to me by a great teaching pastor from Portland named Tim Mackey. And he urged people to look at how this person uh, words his request. Notice what the man says. If you are willing, we, again, unconsciously read that to say, if you are able, heal me. This man has no doubt in his mind that Jesus is able to heal him and make him clean. He doesn't doubt that Jesus can do that. Jesus has already done those other stories. He has proven to the crowds that he can do this. He doubts whether Jesus, as God, would be willing to come into contact with someone so unclean. What he doubts is God's character. Would this God be willing to come into a space with someone as, clean as, as unclean as me? And how should Jesus respond in the story that this man's been given? How should Jesus respond as the holy presence of God when someone unclean waltzes up to him without following any of the rules? A lightning bolt? Possibly death? At the very least, a rebuke? Refusal? Get away from me? But Jesus doesn't do any of that. We read in 41, Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And first I need to start with that first sentence because this is not a great translation for that word in Greek. That word is more often translated as felt great compassion. It uses the word indignant because Jesus is not indignant at the man in the context of this sentence. He is indignant at the brokenness that has caused this man so much pain. Do we understand the profound nature of what I just said? Do you have an image of God who is indignant over human pain when it comes into contact with the one who wants to make things right because of his compassion? And then, and y'all, this is where I get Bible geeky. Jesus does the unthinkable. Just imagine it. It slows down. I think this is the moment that Mark magnifies on. He slows down, he reaches out, and he touches the man with leprosy. Again, without context, we blow right by that. But the Gospels are full of healing stories in which Jesus heals in any number of ways, including speaking healing over people. In other words, he does not have to touch this man to heal him. He chooses to. He chooses to touch an unclean man with leprosy to heal him. And in that moment, and the story Mark had been given, Jesus would have become unclean too. In that moment, the story Mark had been given, Jesus' holiness would be threatened by the uncleanness, or the unclean man might be destroyed by God's pure holiness. But that does not happen. 
Instead, the man is restored. The man is healed, and not just physically. Imagine what this would have meant for him spiritually, mentally, emotionally. He has been isolated, untouched, groaned at, avoided, looked down on for so long. This story implies that he had been this way for a while. And Jesus chooses to reach out and touch him in front of the whole community. And when he does that, I don't think he just heals his body. I think he heals his soul and ends his isolation in front of everybody. It's hard for us even to imagine how profound that is. And then Jesus closes by sending him to receive the ceremonial cleansings and rituals that he would need to go home. And in its proper context, this story is climactic for Mark because I think it blows up. It transforms the very notion of God, God's nature, God's character, and God's mercy for him. It changes his story about who God is entirely. You see, in the story they had held, God was a God that needed to be separated from and protected from the things that were broken and impure and unholy in our world. In the story of God that he had, God's holiness meant that he would not approach someone like that, someone that unclean. And yet, in Jesus, in the Messiah, in this new kingdom reality, we find a notion of God that turns this upside down. It gives him a totally new story for who God is and how God operates. In this new story, God will not be a God that hides from brokenness, uncleanness, pain, sin. He will not turn away from what is wounded. He will not run from it. He will not even take a step back from it. He will take a step towards it. And more than that, he will reach out and touch it. heal it, to restore it, to end its isolation. Do, uh, <laughs> sorry, it gets me. But most importantly of all, I need you to hear me on this one, church. In this new story of Jesus that Mark found, God was clear that our brokenness, our woundedness, our sin, our pain does not infect God's holiness. It is the other way around. God's holiness, his mercy, his love, his compassion infects what is broken in order to love it, show compassion to it, and heal it. Is anyone else's head we have a God that seeks out to touch the most ugly and unclean things in our world because he is indignant at the suffering that the human being who has it feels. And his only response is to reach out and touch it to heal it. And I want to close by posing some thoughts about what this might mean for us to embody this, to live within this story, and to live this story out in our world. First, I want to speak to two types of individuals that might be in this room. The first type might have been given a story about God that makes them identify with the leper. 
and I've been there. Rock bottom. There's something in my life that God would not touch. It's too ugly. It's too unclean. It's too broken. And we believe that God is able, but we doubt his character. Is God the kind of God who would touch someone like me? And they look at these stories and they believe those voices of shame that say, God doesn't love me. I'm too unclean. God hates me. And I want to tell you, I need you to hear me. That is not true. Do not ever let someone make you believe that lie. Because God does not say that to anyone. Because if he did not say it to the leper, I promise that he does not say it to you. So where do you need a new story? This story, a healing story about a compassionate God that looks at you and says, I am willing. The second kind of individual, and I find myself in this category all the time, are the people in this room who have a story of God that looks at other people's brokenness or a certain type of brokenness or a certain type of people. And they believe that God's character means that they would not come into contact with someone like them. That God couldn't love those people or show compassion to those people. And I've got bad news. This shatters any delusion of that being true. We the people of God do not get the luxury of judgment and condemnation. We, as the people of God, have a God with a story that says our God moves towards, reaches out, and touches the most unclean, broken, and lost people in this world without exception. In Jesus' story, we aren't given the right to say, I'll love everyone but those lepers, Jesus. I don't know about the lepers because that's not what God's story tells us. So I would ask you, I would ask myself, who is the leper in your life? What is the leper in your life? Is it a person? Is it a kind of person? Is it a certain thing? What would it change for you to pick up a story in which God says, I am willing to touch that and as his body, you need to, Austin. And lastly, this healing story needs to speak directly to the church, the body of Christ. We need to be a community that embodies and lives out the story of God that fearlessly reaches out to touch the most broken. We must be defined in our world by a character of healing because our God to find himself in our world by a character of healing. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, y'all. We as the church, the global church of history, has failed at this over and over again. We have often believed what this story tells us is utterly untrue, that we need to be the ones who protect God from who we think are unclean. We tell ourselves that we must separate the unworthy, the unholy, the broken from coming into contact with a holy God. 
And I have bad news there too. God doesn't need or want us to be his gatekeepers. He has not asked for it, and he will not ask for it. God is a God with a story that tells me that there is no one too unclean to be touched by the compassion of a loving God. He is not infected by human brokenness. He is trying to reach out and touch that brokenness, to give that broken person a new story defined by the phrase of, yes, I am willing. Are we going to stand in the way of broken people hearing that story? That's the question for the church. And we also need to take seriously what this story tells us about what it looks like to heal. It's not just smiling at people. It's not just caring for their physical needs. It is a compassionate heart radically sold out to loving those who we may think are unlovable. That's the story. And seeking to heal them because that's what our God would have us do. Because the truth is, there is no question about whether God is capable or able or willing to heal the most broken people in our world. His character is clear on that front. There is no doubt. Which means that in God's eyes, there is no question of whether the church, his body, should be capable, able, or willing to heal and show compassion to the most broken people of our world. It's not a question. The question that we need to ask is, will we live in that story? The question that we need to ask is, who is the leper, and how does God's story change my story about them? The question we need to ask, church, is, are we willing? I think, I think that when we get this right, we see people so broken, so isolated, receive the touch of God and compassion, and they are healed. Amen.